You're listening to What Mad Universe on the Greenlit Podcast Network. Check out all our shows at greenlitpodcast.com. Content warning. Racism, alcoholism, cannibalism, premature burial, oblong boxes, casks of Amontillado, and falls of houses of Usher. Action, excitement, horror, romance, thrills and chills, swords and sorcery, rockets and ray guns, a dizzying panoply of the strange and impossible from the darkest depths of the human imagination. What mad universe encompasses such tales as these? Join us as we bear witness to the sweeping sprawl of all the history that never was and all the futures that could yet be. It's adventure as you like it on What What Mad Universe. darkness had materially increased, relieved only by the glare of the water thrown back from the white curtain before us. Many gigantic and pallidly white birds flew continuously now from beyond the veil, and their scream was the eternal Tekalili as they retreated from our vision. Hereupon Nunu stirred in the bottom of the boat, but upon touching him we found his spirit departed, and now we rushed into the embraces of the cataract, where a chasm threw itself open to receive us. But there arose in our pathway a shrouded human figure, very far larger in its proportions than any dweller among men, and the hue of the skin of the figure was the perfect whiteness of the snow. Edgar Allan Poe was born in 1809 and was one of the first American writers to make a living solely from publishing. His parents died when he was very young. He became an alcoholic and a drug addict, married his 13-year-old cousin when he was 26, only to lose her to illness a decade later, and he died under mysterious circumstances in 1849 after having been found wandering the streets after disappearing for several days. In between, he wrote some of the most iconic horror stories of the 20th century, arguably invented the detective story, and left an indelible mark on American literature and genre fiction, inspiring everyone from Arthur Conan Doyle to George Louis Borges to H.P. Lovecraft. Today we're going to look at this one novel, published under the pretense of non-fiction, and it's as strange as anything else about Poe. Hi, welcome to What Mad Universe. I'm Adam Prosser, and with me is Philip Rice. Hi. Uh, you read off the last paragraph of the book there, so spoilers. <laughs> Not spoilers, though. That's the thing about this book. <laughs> it's it's the one. It's it's a thing that happens, and then it ends. Um, yeah. So that that is probably the thing everyone knows about this book, and it's both uh, frustrating, but probably also explains why it's uh, lasted for so long. Although, well, I mean, the fact that it was written by Edgar Allan Poe is probably why it's lasted for so long. But um, it very clearly had a big impact on horror fiction, especially H.P. Lovecraft, very, very visibly uh, inspired by this this novel, and. Um, uh, yeah, it, it seems to have... Uh... And adventure fiction as well. Jules Verne was a huge fan of this book and wrote a uh, 
unauthorized sequel, uh, which right. we'll discuss later. Yeah, which is which is really interesting. Um, so yeah, I mean we're we're talking about Edgar Allan Poe, so he's one he's a figure we in it inevitably had to talk about. Um, I think we all know uh, we know enough about the guy who's a poet and troubled soul, and um, he uh, he yeah he 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 lived a very goth life and died a very goth death, um, and uh, and uh, he made a massive impact on pretty much everything that came later. Uh, he created uh, Auguste Dupin, who was um, basically a forerunner of Sherlock Holmes. He was a French detective. Um, people who've read The League of Assured Gentlemen will remember that character. Um, and he was featured in... Uh, the one I remember the most is The Murder of the Rue Morgue. Uh, I think he's in The Perloid Letter as well. Is that right, Phil? I can't remember. Yeah, I think it's the, I think the Perloid Letter, and there's one or two others. Uh, but yeah, the Murders in the Rue Morgue are the most famous one uh, with uh, Dupin. Uh, so that was a huge influence. Even if that's all he'd ever done, that would be that would be a pretty huge influence. But uh, he, most of what he did was uh, short stories, which is really interesting. And uh, this is actually his only novel. Uh, so I'd read a lot of Poe, and I I liked Poe a lot, but I I had never actually read this book. Uh, and it's very much yeah in in the I can see his influence on a lot of 19th and early 20th century writers from this book. Um, yeah, um, I, I read this one a few years ago, not not too long ago, but um, before we started this podcast, I think, um, just because of its uh, influence and its it's sort of tie. It's not the ending's very ambiguous, but it sort of has some ties into the Hollow Earth genre, which I was which I was reading a lot of at the time. Um, at least it was it was influenced by stories about the Hollow Earth and stuff. The the last bit. Um, right. But have you uh, read the, um, Have you read Message Found in a Bottle? No, that was his That's, earlier. Yeah. Yeah, that one is a very explicitly a Hollow Earth story written by Edgar Allan Poe, uh, which basically ends with a boat going finding the giant hole. <laughs> the, the The theory that was somewhat in vogue at the time. Uh, was that there was a giant hole at the well, both poles, north and south yeah, poles. Yeah, the, the Earth was open at the poles, basically. Right. So it was it was told from the viewpoint of someone who was uh, on a boat that sa that sailed to the hole and was he was somehow able to write this letter, stuff it in a bottle, and throw it away, going, "Oh my God, we're going in!" Right before the ship went into the hole <laughs> at the north. In that story, I think it's the North Pole. Uh, in this one. It's implied to be the South Pole, although it doesn't explicitly talk about uh, going into any any uh, any uh, giant holes or or underground hollow earth. It's just very there's, strongly. There's yeah, there's imagery taken from a lot of uh, theories about it. Right, which is very interesting because apparently Poe considered this story to be realistic adventure fiction. Um, uh, well, uh, he parts of it. Well, that's just it. Like it starts. Uh, you know, about, you know, two-thirds at least are very, uh, very much plausible even today. Like, it's just something that could happen. Yeah, these, um, these a lot of it's taken from the journals of a real-life guy, um, Jeremiah N. Reynolds. Um, okay. Uh, he was an explorer, so a lot of it was taken from, from his journals, uh, to the point where he was, Poe was accused of significant plagiarism, uh, with this <laughs> book. Um, just because he, you know, he didn't like 
outright take it, but like it's clearly, you know, um, right. Uh, some totally. of it's inspired by uh, Poe's own experiences. He was on a he was on a ship for a while uh, mm-hmm. and had a bad experience. Um, and uh, there's significant research into it, though. There's apparently also a lot of nautical mistakes, and um, there are like internal continuity errors in the book. Like um, at one point, he says um, that his friend only told him about uh, this occurrence um, years later. But that friend dies a few chapters later, set right, within that right. month. So, um, um, yeah, there, there's and issues, it's, and it's it's unclear on whether this is intentional or not because uh, it might be an unreliable narrator for large sections. Like the mm-hmm. ending part might just be the main character going mad, the narrator going mad, uh, right. which is very possible and is. But, um, but but the thing is, the preface has him writing very, you know sensibly about <laughs> oh yeah these are the experiences that i have yeah, and um, i'm writing and setting them down I, I think the idea is like he went mad on the trip and later mistook those for actual things that happened to him yeah like yeah there, hallucinations or something like that yeah yeah there's a there's a few different i mean i i tend to read it as you know like edgar Allan poe later apparently I, w- I wouldn't say he renounced it, but he called it a silly book later. And yeah, he, yeah. He... Um, there was a uh, there was a review, a very negative review. Uh, it says um, it was uh, impudent attempted humbugging the public, which is a very <laughs> Victorian era review. Um, and Poe <laughs> yeah. later uh, wrote that he wrote to uh, this reviewer and said that he agreed with it, and he was essentially yeah. correct about the book. But, and I mean, that, I think it sounds like a lot of the negative reaction was because it purported to be a true story and yeah. wasn't. And and, a, and the thing it's is... It's like the Fargo. Book, yeah, like Fargo or any number of... I mean, there's certainly... That became a very... I don't know if Poe was the first to do it. I mean, he may very well have been. Uh, but that became a very common thing in Victorian-era science fiction to be like, well, I'm writing this story and this is what actually happened to me. You know? Oh, I, I, mean, I mean, that, mean, that's that's fairly common. Like, Gulliver's Travels right. does that. Well, yes, but in a specific framework of let me tell you of the madness that I experienced on this trip. You won't, you won't believe it. It's a hundred percent true. Like that kind of campfire story. So, although now that I say that, uh, Frankenstein has that framework as well. Yeah. Yeah. It was, story. it was fairly common. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, and then there's a lot of, um, like, um, uh, Arthur Conan Doyle's, uh, sci-fi stuff, uh, like, um, uh, the, uh, What's the dinosaur story that he wrote? The Lost World. Oh, yeah, um, Lost World. Yeah, he he wrote. That's also supposed to be found in a bottle, if I recall correctly. Um, yeah, as was um, uh, "Len: The Time Forgot" by uh, uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs, I believe. Th- there's a fairly yeah, it's a fairly common actually including uh, some thing. stories set on Mars and things like they're like it's found a found document that somebody's just reading, um, fr- written by whoever traveled to Mars or whatever. I think Across the Zodiac starts with uh, them finding a document and it was written by the astronaut character. Sorry, this is Edgar Rice Burroughs? No, no, no. Um, Across the Zodiac, uh, an early, one of the earliest stories set on Mars, uh, has the uh, framing story that it's a letter uh, written by the astronaut. 
Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. It's it's it's. Uh, that was after this, course, though. But yeah, you know, it's a common. It's a common. Right. That, yeah. I, obviously, of course, that goes back. You know, ages of of just first person storytelling. But but the particular way this is structured and the particular way this is kind of framed has that sort of let you know. Let me tell you of of, of these strange events that foretold me. Uh, you know, even Moby Dick to a certain extent has that. Um, it's sort of like I'm a broken man on a Halifax pier. <laughs> Let me tell you this story of what happened to me. Uh, but the thing is, a lot of them often frame it as, like, for instance, again, Frankenstein. Uh, it's framed from this other observer who yeah. has a brief commentary and then it starts in. This is, you know, being told by Arthur Gordon Pym. Uh, he's the writer. Uh, but as you say, like, the story ends as if it was, like, cut off by someone who was, you know, who was not able to complete the story because he died or something mysterious yep. happened to him um and yet like again the preface is him literally saying well let me set the record straight this is the story of what happened to yeah me. um th th there was a a theory i kind of liked which was just like the idea that um re reliving the the events in literary form made him go insane and die yeah <laughs> yeah like he he died in uh he died reliving the events where he should have died in the events themselves Right, he could like when he encounters whatever the figure is that he encounters at the very end. It's something, you know, awful in the classic sense of meaning awful. Something that just is so beyond human understanding. It it wrecks him, and it 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 does turn the book into a spiritual allegory. Which up till that point I wouldn't have called it that, but it really has that feel. Well, it had it had elements at times, but yeah, it is very interesting how the book, in terms of its structure, again, and and this was published partially in uh what was the name of the journal again the southern uh southern southern literary messenger southern literary messenger and and of course a lot of novels at that time were serialized they would be published uh, chapter by chapter and there so there that's why there's sometimes a bit of a rambling feel to them of just and then this happened and then this happened oh what's the next chapter going to be about uh then this happened yeah. right and this book has that very strong although uh, only um, the first few chapters were actually published that way and then later he released it as a book uh it was it wasn't completed in the uh, serialized format. This one, yeah, which is that's which is very strange because reading it, it does have that feeling of like, well, I got to fill some more chapters. Like it literally, the first, I I, I want to say almost two thirds of the book, uh, feel like they could you could excise them and they got nothing to do with the real, <laughs> the yeah, real story. But that, that's I mean, part of how the how it works. Like it it lures you in with realistic stuff. And it gets increasingly yeah. more uh, outlandish as it goes on, um, and that's that's the um, uh, structure that was copied by a lot of uh, later writers, uh, including uh, at the Mountains of Madness is heavily inspired by this book, uh, particularly right. in structure, and it has a first half that's just basically dry facts about the Antarctic from the knowledge of the time, and then um, they find an alien civilization and all that stuff. Uh, that also right. has the but um, in this book to Kelly Lee um, saying yeah. taken directly from this book. Yeah, to Kelly Lee is is clearly is clearly like that made me go, oh my god, okay, so Lovecraft just straight up <laughs> stole it from Poland. Well, well, and the, of course, the phrase. Uh, I mean, the, the book is quite different, but like, there's obviously. Um, I think this would have been like a uh, 
Well, oh, it's also set in the Antarctic. Yeah, yeah. It's also about a journey into yeah, like, yeah. some kind of alien um, it, it's not, culture. But like, it's it's racist. Yeah. Well, <laughs> um, but uh, it's Lovecraft and Poe. You know, not exactly woke. Yeah. Uh, but um, yeah. uh, I just mean uh, this book would have been known to Lovecraft's audience, so it's not like Lovecraft was slyly stealing it. Like this was a direct reference, probably. Right, right, yeah, of course. Like, like when Stephen King wrote Jerusalem's Lot or Salem's Lot, it was a, you know, it was explicitly an homage to Dracula. Like he's 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 riffing on it in different ways. But it is, it, it just is very interesting to me though that, um, like when I say it, it sort of takes a turn after two thirds. It's like it's this story where of these two people being not shipwrecked but lost at sea. Uh, you know, the storm like tears down their mast, and there's a, well, there's a mutiny. Uh, let's let's go over. Okay, uh, let's just let's go over the. Um, he uh, stows away on the ship because he doesn't want his uh, parents and grandfather finding out about it, because um, they forbid him from sailing after a disastrous uh, experience towards the beginning of the novel when he's young, um, and uh, he stows away in a. Um, in a section of, of the ship that his friend sets up for him. Uh, but he falls asleep too quickly, and it's it's said it's because of the um, fumes in the whaling ship. Um, it, it sort of knocks him out, <laughs> yeah. and it's actually... Uh, for three days, Yeah, it knocks him out. Apparently. Yeah, well, it, it yeah. says that the, the shock isn't that it knocked him out, but that he woke up uh, knowing subsequently about what kinds of fumes there are in that, that situation. But yeah, um, he he wakes up uh, and he finds himself completely locked in there, um, like he can't open the the door anymore, like he could before, because there's a weight on the other side. Um, and he gets and it's completely dark. He has some lights, but they only work briefly. Um, and uh, he finds that his dog is in there, which is a weird detail. Um, his dog Tiger, uh, who's a Newfoundland. What was the breed again? Oh, I I missed. I think yeah, a Newfoundland yeah, something. Terrier, yeah, yeah. It's called. Um, yeah, but uh, yeah, and uh, Tiger has a note on him, and um, so Pim uh, turn. You know, he gets hope that this is a note from his friend Augustus, and uh, he puts on one of the phosphorus lights, but finds that there's nothing written on it, so he throws the lights. So he throws, uh, rips up the paper and throws it away. But then he realizes, in his, after overcoming his delirium a bit, there's probably writing on the other side, <laughs> and he didn't think to check that. Um, so uh, he managed to manages to find the pieces, put them together. But he only uh, manages to, and he reads it, but only manages to to read a few words: uh, "blood" and uh, "stay hidden for your life," something along those lines, um, which right. obviously. Your life depends on lying close, yeah. meaning staying hidden. Yeah, yeah. Um, after the word blood. Um, and uh, so obviously this freaks him out. And this section is uh, another example of Poe's obsession, uh, fear obsession with being buried alive. Like, uh, this is more reminiscent of Follow the House of Usher, uh, where the guy gets... Mm. Or the premature burial. Yeah. Um, and uh, there's also a, a section later in the in the book where he's literally buried alive. So um, right. this was obviously, you know, we know, you know, Poe was well, that. Then there's another thing that happens here and then pops up multiple times throughout the book, which is 
him basically saying, well, I did a really weird, I barely, you know, I, I was barely thinking when this happened. Yeah. I did something often, often to explain why he did something kind of stupid. Like, as you say, forgetting to check. The yeah. Other side of but the paper. people do that. And, like and, he was delirious and like people do but, well, stupid things. I, I'm, it's not the fact that he does it. It's the fact that then Poe, like, kind of, it, he he sort of protests about it and sort of says, "Well, I mean, if you had been in that situation, you'd you'd get you'd get messed I up." I know, but and I think that's actually you too would have would have problems. He'd yeah, say. but it's it's interesting because of course Poe had, you know, blackouts. I mean, he was an alcoholic. He was a, I, I believe he was an opium addict, um, and. Um, that's right, right? He was I an opium so. um, I'm not an expert on Poe's life, it, so... I... Right. It, well, he was definitely, you know, he, 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 he was definitely a substance abuser. And he, of course, famously, as I mentioned at the beginning, is in his, his, uh, his final days, he suddenly showed up after having been missing for, I think, uh, a, a week, and uh, wearing somebody else's clothes and, uh, you know, mentioning names that no one could associate with anyone he knew and right before he died. Um, and there, it, it sort of feels like this is another autobiographical touch and yeah. that he's talking about, you know, that he would lose track of things and, and just could completely yeah, there's lose definitely himself. A theme the of, that there's definitely a theme of alcoholism running throughout this. A lot of people do stupid things when they're drunk. Uh, his friend Augustus right. in the first section, uh, gets drunk, uh, but he's, uh, uh, apparently, He's apparently sober, but he's actually really drunk, and so uh, Pym trusts to go on on his ship, and right. they uh, you know run into problems uh, on Elmo and almost die, and um, that's just because his friend, and that's Pym, that's Poe uh, um, using the idea that drunk people can sometimes pretend not to be drunk, which is a right. Thing. Well, yeah, that that rang very true. The whole sort of he's so drunk you don't. No, he's drunk. He's completely functional, and then suddenly, yeah. <laughs> he actually sobers up enough to start acting drunk and useless. Basically, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, uh, Pim gets out of the uh, the cupboard. Um, his friend Augustus uh, warns him that uh, there's a there's been a mutiny on board, and there's all this violence going on, and he wants to protect Pim and uh, some uh, store. Storage stuff got blocked, locked in the way of the uh, the door, and he couldn't move it without alerting everybody to what was going on. Um, eventually, they and the um, the mutiny is uh, uh, has two different groups. Uh, one, the, the more violent group, led by the uh, black cook. Uh, there's, like I said, un very unfortunate racial issues in this book. Um, and uh, there's also a character introduced here named Dirk Peters, who's actually a, a heroic figure in the book. Like, he's a, he's a good guy, and he uh, aids Pym till the end. And he's uh, set up in the, both of the un, unauthorized sequels as a, also a heroic figure and a good guy. But he's uh, half-native, and he's described in ways that are extremely racist, uh, including constantly calling him the half-breed or the hybrid or very right. dehumanizing language and he's like freakishly proportioned and um it's weird very strong and uh yeah he he he's yeah it's it's funny and he's a mutineer but then he ends up becoming his sort of staunch companion throughout the yeah. rest of the book um they become really good pals after all this is over so yeah 
Um, speaking of which, my staunch companion, uh, it's time to take a quick break to listen to some uh, advertisements for products and or services. We'll be right back on What Mad Universe. Hello everyone, we're superhero stuff you should know, and if you think you know about superheroes and comic books, think again. We got romance, we got action, romance. we got comedy, we got everything you need, man. Come on down to superhero stuff you should know for all your superhero needs. Uh, ro I, I don't know about this romance, what part are you talking about? We've got all kinds of sketches, and then deep dives on top of that. Come on down to superhero stuff you should know. Alright, so come on down to, wait, why did I say come on down? To superhero stuff you should know. Part of the Greenlit Podcast Network. <laughs> Hello, my name is Jonathan Dunn, and I'm inviting you to listen to Our Three Cents, a weekly podcast where myself and two of my very best gaming chums are counting down our top 100 favourite video games of all time. For all the episodes and information, check out our website, www.our3cents.co.uk. So yeah, Pam uh, ends up by using the fact that they don't know he exists to his advantage. They had, um, the mutineers uh, had uh, kidnapped, or had killed uh, one of the other sailors with poison, and he bloated up really grossly, and uh, they were all shocked by it. So Pim dresses up like that sailor um, yeah. in, his, in his clothing and fakes the bloated stomach. And uh, that shocks them enough for um, Augustus and uh, Dirk Peters to fight back, uh, and they end up winning. But then, uh, but then uh, they get hit by some storms, uh, and uh, all their provisions are lost, and uh, uh, they end up drawing straws to eat one of the to have to eat uh, one of the crew members to survive. Uh, they also uh, come across, during this period, they come across uh, a ship and they think they're saved. Uh, but the ship doesn't seem to be responding to them. And uh, they see the, the um, guy at the front, I forget what his position was supposed to be, I don't know anything about nautical stuff, uh, had a weird grin. And when the ship passes closely, they see that everybody on the ship is a corpse, including this guy standing there with his face partially rotted away. Uh, very disturbing image. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's funny because this whole incident happens and it has nothing to do with anything specific in the story. It's just a horrifying... No, it just... Yeah, it just... It's just uh, another example of something weird that happens to them. Uh, anyway, uh, after they eat the guy, uh, they get rescued by uh, another ship and then decide to go exploring in the south. Uh, it just sort of... Now this happens. <laughs> Yeah, that's what I meant when I said it. That's what was so bizarre. It's like there's this whole extended period where they're lost at sea. They have to eat a guy. It's terrible. It's it's horrifying. It's clearly inspired by Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, uh, too. Um, and then um, suddenly they get rescued, and then they continue and having adventures. Like that whole sequence didn't really pay off in any narrative sense. Like you you'd think that what it would be is we're lost at sea, and then we wash ashore on this island, and then we continue having adventures, which would have made everything kind of more desperate and, you know, cranked up the stakes a bit more, I think, in many ways. Um, yeah, but I but guess... It's, it, yeah, there's probably some thematic reason that I'm not equipped to uh, explain. Yeah. Uh, well, it gives it for a similitude. It does make it yeah. sound like, oh yeah, these are a series of adventures I had uh, at, at sea. Um, 
and there's again if we're going for this whole spiritual allegory thing it's kind of like i don't know maybe that's the fact that they were lost and then they get found and and given a purpose to explore and and seek out <laughs> new civilizations or something i don't know sure uh, let's but go it with is, that <laughs> it's a very strange uh plot way of plotting to a modern viewer of course yeah um, well it does i mean a lot of like, like gulliver's travels like in adaptations well most adaptations just do the lily put part but um in adaptations that do the rest of it like the well there's brobdick bag the, um, and there's laputa and the Huynam. yeah yeah but what, what's his name the, the actor uh sam from cheers oh ted danson yeah ted danson yeah the ted danson version which did adapt the other parts had it all mm-hmm. one journey uh that were you know he went off and right. did all went to all these islands but in the actual book he came back and went out each time right 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 these were but, separate but that, journeys but- all I'm saying is just that those incidents in Gulliver's Travels are contained, you know, uh, anecdotes, right? Like they, they, they have not vignettes because they're fairly substantial, but like the story of Lilliput is a story in and of itself, and he had that one adventure, and then the Brobdingnag, yeah. he has another adventure, and so on and so forth. And whereas in this, it's kind of like it, the, all the whole thing of being lost at sea feels like it's gearing up to what's going to happen later in the story and it but there's a break because they're rescued so plot wise that whole part didn't really have any impact on the last third of the book which is where all the memorable stuff is and the real portion of the adventure as it were so it's just a a bit of a weird except that they pick up dirk peters but he sort of replaces augustus who who i forgot to mention dies of his wounds yeah. Um, well, you did say that you died a few chapters later, so yeah, yeah. But I, I also, don't think also I said not clear on what happens to Tiger. Did they ever explain what happened to Tiger? The um, well, it says that he died, um, sort of off page. But and this is uh, I was going to save this for later. But in the Vern story, he survives quite a bit into the into the story. He dies on Salal Island, actually, in the oh, okay. uh, Vern ver- Vern accounting of the events, which makes no okay. sense, because why did they eat a guy when they had a dog there? I mean, right. I like dogs, I but I'm going to go yeah. with the, I'm going to go with yeah. the dog before I go with the person. <laughs> yeah. Well, then there's also the part, and again, I mean, we're getting into like Poe's own issues, obviously, but there's the fact that they eat the guy, and then he remembers, oh wait, we had an axe which we could use to chop in and and rescue some more food. <laughs> like that <laughs> happens after they ate the guy, and then suddenly they he remembers out of the blue that he had a way. And again, he's, he's a little bit defensive about it, writing about it. And that's, I mean, that's well, supposed to be when part you're of dying the from hunger, you can't think straight. Yeah. I, which is, yeah, fair enough. And, but, and once uh, you, I, eat, not, you have more clarity, I don't know. I'm just, yeah, it is, but it is, it just, it actually ends up being a little bit like you, you, you kind of slap your forehead. Cause it's like, you killed an eight. Well, yeah, they killed him, because they had to kill him to eat him. He wasn't already yeah. dead. He was literally... They drew straws to see who would get eaten. They ate the guy, and then suddenly uh, Arthur goes, Oh, wait, there was an axe I could use to hack. Because they couldn't get into the storeroom was the problem uh, during the flooding. And so when they get in, there's suddenly there's food in the storeroom. So it's like, <laughs> guys, you killed a dude. Admittedly, he was one of the mutineers that they killed, but still. Anyway. So uh, yeah. Yeah. So they get picked up by the uh, the Jane guy, a ship, uh, um, and um, they they decide to to journey south, farther south than anybody had gone before. Uh, they wind up on an island of racist caricatures 
called Salal. Um, it's it's got some unfortunate stuff here. Um, yeah. They're um, they're black skinned people. Um, uh, they seem to be afraid of the color white. Like whenever they see something white, they get really terrified and yell to Kelly Lee um, or Tekka Lee. There's no like standardized pronunciation, but um, yeah, they're they're completely black except for the whites of their eyes. Even their teeth are black, uh, which is weird. Um, yeah, and they uh, seem friendly at first, but then they just start attacking the ship. And um, well, they they literally like they take them in, they give them food, they make them feel welcome. They seem like they seem pretty cool, and then suddenly, as they're getting ready to leave, they spring a trap of uh, burying them in a in a canyon, basically. Like as they're, yeah. they're saying, "Come back for a final celebration." Uh, they lead them into a, a canyon and, and collapse it on them, basically. Um, which I'm not even 100% clear on why they did that. I guess they just wanted to rob the ship, right? Um, um, it's not clear. Uh, it's possible they were offended by their white skins because they're afraid of white things. Um, hmm. yeah. Like the white animal that washes up shore, and they're, they're clearly terrified of it. And right. to Kelly Lee is... Um, what they say when they see something white, and it's obviously a, a taboo in their culture. Um, and later we see a, a white bird yelling that, so it probably comes from well, the bird. Whatever, well, it, it comes, whatever they encounter at the very end of the book is a massive figure either dressed in white or that just is completely white. Yeah, and that, it's that monstrous. as well. And that is obviously what has inspired this, uh, this fear of the color white in them. Although, you know, being afraid of white people is probably a logical move, too, when you're so sees under. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, um, which is, it's, like, that is actually interesting that that's there. Like, it's, you know, Poe was not, you know, he was, he wasn't exactly uh, trying to be empathetic to uh, to the natives there. But there is a whole, you know, racial subtext, if you apply death of the author, <laughs> of, yeah. like, you know, I, and as you say, an unreliable narrator, you're kind of going, like, yeah, maybe there's a reason they're afraid of white. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll get into the, the sequels. They have some silly explanation, or one of them has a silly explanation for this. Um, yeah, so uh, they, they escape. They have one of the natives with them named Tuwit. Again, the, the natives have really silly no, names. No, no, uh, no. Tuwit was sorry. the uh, Tuwit was the chief, yeah. sorry. Uh, yeah. What was the town's name again? Uh, co or something. K clock, clock. That's it. Clock, clock. Yeah, clock, clock. Very silly names. Um, yeah. Really does sound like the gibberish that uh, that uh, Swift came up with for Gulliver's Travels, but that was supposed to be comedic. So, yeah. Uh, anyway, um, so uh, as they get closer to the south, uh, the water gets warm. Warmer and warmer and milk-like, like milky in color. Um, and uh, there's fog banks and just weird stuff starts happening. And it seems like the the ocean is... Uh, how did they put it again? The um, like um, masses were falling. Well, um, ash is... Well, maybe it's not ash, but uh, something ash-like is falling from the sky. They yeah, say it's kind of milky white, uh, like a cataract is what the house is how he describes it. Yeah, a sea to sea cataract, and it's as you say, it's warm, 
rather than cold, which is again apparently in line with some of the theories about what would happen if you approach the poles at that yeah. time. And, and um, they come across this white figure, uh, Nunu dies of shock, and uh, it ends. Yeah. They the end, encounter no a white figure. Yeah, very yeah. much. Very, very abrupt ending, which is literally one of the things that has made this a memorable story for so long. Um, and and uh, yeah, it's, it's 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 somewhat like the uh, the life of Brian joke, where uh, he doesn't finish his speech, so they become obsessed with what he was going to say next, <laughs> and forms a cult around him. Yeah, it's you can see how that uh, that definitely and that was something Poe did do in some of his other books, and then you can see things like like Lovecraft obviously employed that a lot. It's the sort of you end abruptly on the glimpse of something horrific, uh, mo move which uh, yeah became the the go to for a long time. Yeah, uh, there's also some uh, apparently it wasn't in your version, but there's usually a uh, afterwards saying that uh, the last few chapters were went missing and that uh pym is not able to uh and that they'll publish it all once if they find their remaining chapters it's right. kind of weird um well i i mean so that makes it very clear that poe was like i almost for a second when i read it i kind of went oh he just didn't finish it but um it's very clear that poe was going for the value of the thing you don't see is scarier than the thing you do yeah. see. So he wanted to leave it completely enigmatic. And this, again, may be his sort of innovation in this story uh, that everyone then that influenced everyone. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk about some of the sequels. Because uh, hmm. uh, obviously this ending uh, upset people in the sense that, you know, I want to see what happens. <laughs> yeah, um, right. And so uh, at least two writers uh, wrote um, direct sequels to this book uh, without, obviously, permission from the Poe estate or whatever, though copyright was looser then. Um, one being Jules Verne, who was a big fan of Edgar Allan Poe in general. Uh, viewers might recall the, or listeners to this might recall the uh, Kate Be Beaton, um, Hark of Vagrant uh, strip, <laughs> where... Um, uh, Jules Verne is writing fan mail to Edgar Allan Poe. Um, <laughs> uh, honey, who delivered this letter? It smells like French perfume. Dear Mr. Poe, love your work. Mm. Can you uh, put more balloons in your stories? I think we should be friends. Also, I drew a picture of us. Write me back. And there's a picture of uh, Poe and Verne together in a balloon with the b word bros on it. And the last panel is Poe just looking at the paper. And that last panel became a meme. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, so yeah, uh, that's basically true. <laughs> yeah, that's what's so uh, funny about Kate Beaton. All her jokes are like, <laughs> this is a joke, but actually it is true. It is accurate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I obviously didn't write that letter, but, or that we know of. Yeah. But, um, he, he wrote a, an entire book that's just fanfic for this one Poe po story. Um. Right. Which makes so, it appropriate that, that, you know, he, then he, he was the subject of the greatest, work of literature in yep. the English language. The Adventures uh, of Saturn and Ferrandel, yes. <laughs> yes, which was then a fanfic sequel to Jules Verne's stuff. So that yeah. explains why Jules Verne was so cool with it, because he'd already done it to Edgar Allan Poe, yeah. basically. So that's funny. Um, so uh, this was uh, years later. This was in um, 1897. 
Uh, it was uh, called An Antarctic Mystery, sometimes translated as The Sphinx of the Ice Fields, and that title is actually literal. Um, yeah, so uh, basically it's about a, um, uh, a an American uh, named uh, uh, Mr. Jorling. I forget his first name. They just call him Jorling usually. Um, who encounters uh, the brother of the uh, uh, captain of the Jane Guy from the uh, original book. And uh, it turns out that the Poe story that they all, that uh, he thought was fiction was actually a real account of something that happened. And um, uh, Len Guy is obsessed with finding his brother, who he believes to still be alive. Um, and uh, they end up traveling down. They find Salal Island, but all the natives uh, died in a natural... Um, in a, uh, uh, what you call it, uh, natural disaster. Um, and uh, they find out that uh, Tiger had survived the adventure at least up until the island uh, where he um, uh, helped to rescue some of the other uh, sailors. So um, not just Pym survived the, the avalanche or the intentional avalanche, but um, the other sailors stayed on the other side of the island. As well, um, and uh, oh, they also pick up a uh, mysterious sailor who is obviously Dirk Peters, and then they reveal him to be Dirk Peters in the least surprising twist ever. Uh, who's since the events of the uh, book has gone uh, slightly mad and is um, um, completely obsessed with uh, uh, rescuing Pym, who is still actually trapped at the Antarctic. Um, According to this, uh, it was Dirk Peters who uh, related this story of what uh, to uh, Edgar Allan Poe, not even Pym though himself. it's from the even th though it's from the point yeah, of Arthur Gordon Pym. <laughs> yeah, I don't okay. know. Yeah, there, there's some issues with this. Uh, <laughs> um, so anyway, they they uh, uh, they eventually get to the north, travel onto the uh, Antarctic continent. Um, and uh, they discover a giant sphinx shape uh, that's magnetic, like super, like a super magnet that attracts all metal to it. And um, the uh, the corpse of Pym is is down there, uh, uh, kneeling before it. They're not kneeling, but like his corpse is is uh, around that area. So uh, and then they get back. So that's basically that book. Um, and uh, it's not as um, weird, I guess. They, they, they explain stuff uh, more scientifically. So it doesn't have that uh, element of weirdness. I mean, there's a sphinx there, but it's sort of implied to be a, a natural phenomenon that's just vaguely shaped like a sphinx. Oh, okay. Well, that, that was definitely a thing Vern did uh, in Journey of the Sun of the Earth. He does the same thing of like, it's and again from this novel, it's realistic. It's realistic for for what he understood at the time. Uh, and then very n near the end, they catch a glimpse of this uh, you know hideous figure, gigantic figure that lives underground before they're being they're suddenly sh thrown back up to the surface. So that was that seems in keeping with what uh, Vern tended to do with his. his yeah, stuff. and this um, follows up on the cannibalism story with um, uh, sort of uh, plot. Plot-wise, at least, um, Dirk Peters' main shame is eating that guy. Um, and um, one of the uh, 
sailors on the uh, new ship is the brother of that guy, so that causes some uh, tension. <laughs> of all There's the a luck. lot. This book has a lot of. And this guy's related to this character from the original book, or is actually this character from the original book. So there's a there's a few too many coincidences, but I guess you could say that about the original book too. Yeah, there's a lot of coincidences in the original too. Yeah. Uh, so uh, that I, I didn't think this was a was particularly great, but it's great compared to the other sequel that I read, um, uh, which is um, oh sorry, a strange discovery. Uh, 1899 by Charles Roman Dake, uh, who wrote nothing else. He was Wikipedia listed as a homeopath and writer of this book. So that's that's a great track record. Um, it's terrible. It's it's. Um, I had to skip large sections of it because it was just unpleasant to read. Um, it's set in America and it's about a um, uh, the main character getting in. Uh, friendship with a homeopath and a doctor who are constantly bickering at each other. Um, and they end up going to a hospital where they discover an aging and dying Dirk Peters uh, who relates a story uh, of what actually happened after the events of uh, the novel to an another character. And they get it, um, I believe it was the homeopath, so that the narrator is getting it third hand. <laughs> Um, and the, uh, and, uh, so it cuts between the, the narrative of, uh, what happened after the book and, uh, annoying back and forth conversations between the homeopath and the doctor that are just unpleasant to read. And those are the parts I generally skimmed over. Um, they're just like trying to be comedy and they're just not good, really boring. And it's nothing to do with the rest of it. It's, it's a bizarre, bizarrely structured book. and. This writer didn't write anything else, and you can see why. Anyway, the explanation and, and is... And he shoehorned um, his, his own love for homeopathy into the book, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah, the homeopath is, of course, the rational one, and the doctor is is a um, stuck-up bigot. So, you know. Um, yeah, I, I read this one years ago, so I'm not remembering all the details clearly, but uh, just my utter disgust when I was reading it. It's just a really unpleasant book. Anyway, the explanation for what happens is they discover uh, the uh, the giant uh, white figure is a statue. Um, that's the entrance to uh, Hilly Lee, which is a lost Roman colony in the Antarctic, in a uh, volcanic region. So that's why okay. it's warm there. Um, Roman and it of just, all things, okay. Yeah, um... And it's Was this a, inspiration um, for you, for your comic? Is that yeah, yeah. I, I used uh, just the idea of a Roman colony at the Antarctic called Hilly Lee. Um, I haven't expanded on it yet, but when I do, it'll be much different from the one depicted in this book, which is really boring. Uh, um, but I, I like the basic idea. That's basically why I read this book, because I, I liked the basic premise of a Roman colony in the Antarctic, but... Uh, it was not written well. Anyway, the rest of it's sort of a romance with uh, him falling in love with the princess or something. And uh, there's court intrigue and stuff. And this has nothing to do with, with Arthur Gordon Pym. And I don't know why it's connected to it. Um, and there's occasional, like Dirk Peters does a bunch of action hero stuff. And 
they explain it scientifically how he's able to jump so far and it's such a miserable book uh the only supernatural element is there's a uh one of the uh members of hilly lee is a uh, uh ancient and he seems to be like hun hundreds or thousands of years old and he's a wizard or something anyway uh the place gets um flash uh a flash freeze and they escape and uh Pim wants to go back or something. I, I, whatever. Yeah. So I it's, do not it's, recommend that book. It's very, very. It's so we're getting into f the usual fanfic thing here. That yeah. Show, showing that fanfic has been around very much so for hundreds of years. If oh, not yeah. thousands. Uh, I and, imagine most fanfic is better than this book, though. And that's and, saying and something. literally, literally, well, not almost do, literally doing a Mary Sue, except with a. a with a with a an ideology instead of a person, uh, yeah. Right. <laughs> so it's it was frustrating. It was a frustrating read. Yeah, and um, that almost that almost makes me go as well. Like he probably tagged it into there because people liked uh, the narrative of Arthur Gordon, Gordon Pym. That was the you know that 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 gave it a hook that let him uh, yeah let people pay attention, which otherwise might not have gotten right. I guess. I mean, I read it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Um, See, it still works. Yeah. Uh, so there's been some other uh, examples of people taking this book uh, in more recent years. Um, came across this on Wikipedia. I haven't read the, the comic here, but uh, this is DC Comics. In a 1988 Young All-Stars comic book written by Roy, Tom Roy and Dan Thomas, Arthur Gordon Pym is a 19th century explorer who discovered the lost Arctic civilization of the alien Dyson. Pym goes on to become Jules Verne's Captain Nemo, eventually sinking the Titanic. Okay. Well, that's... And that... This is... I mean, this may be the origin of the, you know, the Antarctic as the secret land where all kinds of cool stuff is happening. Uh, uh, not the origin, but one of the early examples, and probably one of the most famous. Yeah. Uh... Yeah, so that that's kind of weird, but it sort of seems like something that would fit into a League of Extraordinary Gentlemen sort of thing, which yeah. also did a uh, an issue on. Uh, well, um, League of Extraordinary Antarctic Gentlemen stuff. uses uh, the some of the elements of this in uh, one of the Nemo books, if I'm not. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, that's what I was talking about. Yeah, it uses. Um, they go to the Antarctic, and there's elements from this, elements from Sphinx of the Ice Field, um, and elements of Lovecraft and other various other uh, art Antarctic stories. So um, that's sort of a modern version. Um, it seems there's a, uh, uh, in the life of Pi, the book about the boy and the tiger, there's a character named Richard Parker, who was one of the sailors on the, uh, right on the, uh, on the, uh, um, he's the guy they eat, if I'm not, yep, if I'm not mistaken. I believe so. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so that's, that's from... uh, probably a deliberate reference because of what happens in that book. Right. Um, I only saw the movie, but um, which is a weird, random thing. But I mean, yeah, you're right. It's like a, the coincidence of that being a lost at sea story <laughs> being referenced is probably and yeah. with with cannibalism. Yeah, with cannibalism. Yeah. Uh, spoilers. Uh, and um, uh, let's see. There's a novel called Pym that's about uh, racial politics in the United States that apparently draws in from uh inspiration from this book. I haven't read that. It's from 2011. Seems to be well regarded. Um, also in um, 
uh, George uh, Perrick's uh, 1969 novel of Void, which is uh, one of a couple novels written entirely without the letter E. Um, it uh, references the Raven, um, but uh, attributes it to Arthur Gordon Pym because Edgar Allan Poe's name has E's in it. Hmm. <laughs> uh, right. Well, and of course, Arthur Gordon Pym is probably, like, literally he says, well, I wrote, I gave this to Edgar Allan Poe to write, and Arthur Gordon Pym is riffing on Edgar Allan Poe, right? Like, it's, yeah. he, he, he kind of renamed himself as Arthur Gordon Pym. Yeah. Uh, real Mary Sue, that Arthur Gordon Pym. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, and of course, the, the biggest influence uh, in terms of modern pop culture is probably uh, At the Mountains of Madness, which directly, as we discussed, lifts elements from this book. Yep. Anyway, um, so uh, yeah, I think... So, I, um, I guess we, we should we should wrap up. Uh, what, what did you think of this overall? Like, do you recommend it to people, or...? <laughs> I, I can't really recommend it. I, I It's interesting, uh, and you can see, like, the, it's, the thi it's a thing where there's elements of it that were no doubt brilliant and had an, a, an enormous impact, but so much stuff has done it better since. Um, yeah. Just in terms of the ambiguity, the uh, the 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 way that you know things are obscured, including the novel abruptly ending right before the really crazy stuff happens, um, and the fact that it really does feel as as we've discussed, you know, it was it's an honest book. Poe is putting himself on the page, but it really does feel slapdash, and and you can kind of see why he. He renounced it a bit. Like it does feel like I've just yeah. I gotta keep the word count going. There, know, there's a lot of good individual parts, and I think that's why Poe stuck to short stories otherwise, because right. he's really yeah. good at like a short, snappy section, but yeah. in terms of long form narrative, he's Yeah, he runs into some problems. Yeah, you cut off the last fifty pages of this, and it makes a solid short story by itself, right? It's like the whole other, like I say, the whole first bit, other than introducing the characters, is not really related to the thing everyone remembers yeah. from the book. So, yeah. Though, like so I said, um, though, like I said, part of that is building up uh, to the craziness, but yeah, right. You could definitely yeah, I mean, do that in a shorter runtime. <laughs> and you could also do it with a with a, like a a narrative that's a little more coherently linked together, basically. But yeah. 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 So yeah, it's not for a modern, and I say that as someone who really enjoys Edgar Allan Poe, uh, you know, his short stories are often great, but I think this, uh, this is as, as instrumental as it is. I don't think this is something. Yeah. A modern I, I would agree story. with all that. I, I think it's interesting from an historical point of view, but it doesn't quite hold up and it's got a lot of, really racist stuff that's yeah, um, it's very intrinsic to it like you can't yeah. just yeah but it's yeah. interesting certainly yeah so there you go which is why we talked about it so there you go so if you do want to actually you know be completist and read you know literary you know titans and things of literary worth then yes you should read it but just <laughs> you skip want to skip yeah. a strange discovery because that book mm -hmm. sucked yeah well, our horrific journey has come to an abrupt end in the mysterious regions around the pole. We are Abel Seaman, Adam Prosser, and Bosun's Swain, Philip Rice. As ever, uh, we want to thank our engineer and producer, Alex Ross, for rescuing us before we had to resort to cannibalism, and theme song writer, Jack Furick, whose strange music is like the call of the bittern bird. Tekalele, tekalele. 
Uh, just a reminder, we both have a Patreon, which helps pay for hosting costs and whatnot. And if you subscribe to either of us, you can uh, listen to this podcast early, every time, as well as getting bonus material, cut footage, and illustrat- illustrations of comics, among other things. Uh, just go to Patreon and search for Philip Rice, one L, or Adam Prosser, two S's. It's at neversleepsnetwork.com slash series slash what-mad-universe for the links. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter at WMU Podcast or Prankster36 for me or SpearHalfHawk underscore for Philip. Ghastly Grim and Ancient Wanderer on the night's Plutonian shore. So until next time, set your sails for the hole in the pole. <laughs> <laughs>